Here I am. I've been in some form of Christian ministry for about over 30 years. And my two brothers are definitely not candidates for that sort of thing. Uh, neither of them at this stage in their lives shows a particular interest in God or in Jesus. That's not to say they don't have opinions about God or what they have ideas about spirituality. They can probably hold a conversation in all those areas with people. But when it comes to personal faith, the idea of you know, putting your trust in Jesus, that does not describe them in any way. You know, I love my brothers. We, we get on quite well. But we're on, kind of on different tracks in life, quite different tracks. And here's, I think, where things for people of faith become tense, or there's a tension involved there. See, if I believe what the Bible says, and the Bible kind of talks about this idea that one day there will be this judgment, that God will hold the world and all of us accountable for our lives, and he'll do it by the person he raised from the dead, that Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, he becomes the judge of all people. And that people really, of ourselves, we can't stand in that judgment. We can't go into that judgment and say, I'm okay. We can't save ourselves. Eternal life is not something that automatically comes with your birth. That means if we follow the story of the Bible through, if nothing changes on this in this regard, this idea of my brothers and I being on different tracks in the here and now could be something we're on different tracks for for eternity. And that's a, that's a tension. That's a difficult thing to come to terms with. It means that these people I love, people I get on with, people I like to spend time with, if nothing changes, there's no assurance, no real assurance for them of an eternal life in God's kingdom. You know, one of the few downsides of thinking about eternity as a Christian, as someone who believes in Jesus and believes in the promises of God for the future is considering the possibility there may be people that we love who aren't on the same track that we're on. Our neighbours, colleagues, friends and family, some of them may not be heading in that direction. And without faith in Christ, the Bible doesn't offer an assurance for people of eternal security. There's not an assurance given in that space. So as I share that, I wonder if people come to your mind, if there are people in your family. Maybe there are people close, your parents, your children your cousins, your neighbours, your workmates, husband or wife. You may have tried to live faith before them. You may have shared your faith with them. But as yet, there's no interest. There's no response. They don't seem impressed at all by the story of Jesus. This is a tension for people of faith. And it can be quite a difficult tension to live with. So I want to talk about that situation. How do we live with this tension what do we do? Where does that tension drive us? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what Jesus has done, for the story that we read in the scriptures, that we are rescued by his sacrifice on the cross, and that we can have confidence in the judgment. There's a promise of eternity with you. Lord, thank you that your resurrection guarantees that. But many of us have friends and family who, as yet, have not recognised that or aren't interested in that. We're grateful for what you've done for us, for the world, but we're concerned for those who haven't yet realised that, especially those who are close to us. Lord, I pray you give us clarity on this. Give us a way forward in the tension that we face in this issue. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Because I want to go for a story in the Old Testament that I think speaks to this very situation. It might speak to it in a way you might not expect. So probably at the end, I'll, I'll, it kind of pushes us in a certain direction. So it's the story of Abram. Uh, so it's uh, Genesis chapter 18. Here's the context. Three men have turned up to Abraham's tent. It's, a, it's, it's the heat of the day. And, and they've come and they've confirmed the promise. Abraham had a promise. No children. Uh, they get to the... Sarah's 90 at this stage. No children. It looks like none's coming. But he had a promise. And the, and the, the angels come and say, the promise, I confirm, next year the promise is coming. You're going to have a child. Now, it turns out two of these men are angels and one is the Lord himself. Uh, they've heard a report. They've also heard a report that down the road... Uh, down on the plain, there's these cities called Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're pretty bad places. And the Lord's coming by to kind of confirm this promise and then go and check out these towns and see whether or not they're really as bad as all the reports that are coming to him. So here's the story, uh, verse 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. So they kind of like confirmed the promise, and now they're heading down to check these places out. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and a powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Story goes on. Then the Lord says, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. So the other guys go, Abraham stays, remains standing before God. What happens next, I think, is very significant. But I'm going to skip forward in the story and I'm going to come back to what happens next because I think that's the place that this story drives us to. Uh, it has huge implications, I think, for the question of our family and our friends and how we connect with them. Okay, so skip forward. Next chapter, chapter 19, verse 12. Uh, they go off. Um, the story continues. The two angels arrive in Sodom. They meet Lot. Lot says, come and spend the night at my place. Uh, they eventually do. Now, Sodom's a, it's a violent, nasty place. And uh, the men of the city come and surround the house and say, we're gonna, we're gonna, we want those men. We, they, they, their plan is to molest these guys. Uh, but because the angels are powerful enough, they blind the men and, and they're able to defend the place. And in response to all this, this terrible episode, these guys decide, Sodom, it's too late. They, there's no hope for this city. It's, it's so bad, judgment is going to come. So verse 12. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here in the city? Sons-in-law, daughters-in-law, anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against this people is so great, he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. So judgment is coming, and the angels tell Lot, get your family out of here. Run away before the judgment comes. The city is going to be destroyed. Lot tries to tell them. They think he's joking, and so they obviously don't respond. Okay, it goes on, verse 15. With the coming of dawn, 
The angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. So Lot, this is a disturbing thing, but eventually he gets pushed really by the angels and dragged out of the city because the destruction's coming quickly and they're told not to look back. Lot's wife looks back, she becomes a pillar of salt. Uh, Scary stuff. Eventually Lot and his two daughters escape from the city and they settle in a small town uh, and are spared from the destruction. The angels get them out of the city, they're safe. Then destruction comes upon the city. Fire and sulfur rain down and the city is destroyed. Now, that all happens down on the plain. After that, the story then picks up the following morning with Abraham. Back to where Abraham is. Abraham's up in the hills. A bit like, you know, when Les Murdy down on the plain, it's all being destroyed. He, he, Abraham looks up. He sees the smoke rising. So verse 27, early the next morning... Abraham got up and returned to the place where he'd stood before the Lord. Very significant in the Bible when people come back to the place they were before. Places often make a difference. Returned to the place where he'd stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. He sees this is the place his relatives were. How does he feel? I think he's very concerned for them. He doesn't know yet what has happened. As far as he knows, the whole place is gone. He knows that this is where his relatives were. I think we need to notice in that story that Sodom doesn't get a reprieve. It would be great if the story ended like the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, a very similar thing happens. Jonah is sent to the city of Nineveh and says... The city's going to be destroyed. The people listen and they turn and they come back to God and they repent. Disaster is averted. That's the story of Nineveh and the book of Jonah. Wouldn't it be, that'd be a great end to every story. But similar story. This story, it ends differently. There's no reprieve for Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes judgment falls. And in the big picture of history, the whole idea is being one day judgment will fall. On the whole world. The Jonah story is a great story. The Ninevites get rescued, but it's the story of Sodom that is the example for the end of time when the judgment comes. There's something about this story that reflects the ultimate judgment. There's no grand reprieve at the end like there is for Nineveh. Judgment falls ultimately on humanity. So, what does the story teach us? Look at ancient stories. There are often key statements in the story. Uh, Remember, people couldn't read, so the authors would often rely on little clues they put into the story that would help you as you read the story to focus on what's important. So here, one thing, Abraham returns to the place that he was. That's an important point in the story. Going back to the same place. The author, by doing that, is wanting us to remember what happened there, what happened in this same place. Abraham, in that place the day before, had had a conversation with God. It's the bit I skipped, we'll come back to. Uh, It's a strange conversation. It's about people being rescued from destruction. But I think after that conversation, God knew what Abraham wanted 
And Abraham knew that he'd made his request clear to God. Abraham was relaying his concern for his relatives that were living in Sodom. He was putting his concern on the table. Essentially, he's crying out to God for his loved ones. That's what Abraham's doing. The next morning, in the same place, he looks out and he sees the smoke rising. Destruction has come. Abraham doesn't yet know. He's thinking what's happened. Another key point in the story uh, is about to be revealed. The structure, again, of ancient stories... Very often something is said right at the end of the story. It's like, you know, we sometimes have a parable and we say, well, the moral of the story is, and it kind of makes the the intent of the story clear. That happens here. It helps you understand the story. The point of this story is not the fact of the judgment. That happens, but it's not the point of the story. The cities are destroyed, and the New Testament looks back at this story and says, this is an example of the judgment of the whole world. But the story is actually a story of hope. It's very important we understand the shape of the hope that it gives us. It's not a hope that the world can avoid judgment. That's not the hope that we're given in this story. I don't think that's a hope that we're given in the Bible. Nor is it a hope that every human being will ultimately be saved. That's not a hope I think we have in the Bible. There's a tension here, a theological tension The idea of judgment and the idea of we love people. Uh, One way of dealing with that tension, some people take is, well, let's take the idea of judgment away. That resolves the tension. There's no judgment. You don't have to worry about anything. We create a God who never judges. That solves the tension. But I don't think it's true to the story of the Bible to say that. You can't really take the Bible seriously and come to that conclusion that God never judges. So how do do we resolve the tension between the idea of judgment and hope? How do we resolve that? Hope is introduced in the story, but it's not a hope that says there is no judgment. It is a hope that recognises possibility of salvation. So judgment falls in the story. The city of Sodom is destroyed, but also in the story, people escape from that judgment. There is judgment, but there is also hope of salvation and escape from judgment. Why do the people get rescued? Was it because they could run faster than anyone else? You know, Commonwealth Games, maybe they were gold medalists. It's, that's, not the, that's not the hope. Was it because they're really good preppers? You know, who knows what a prepper is? People who kind of have a lot of food stored up and, they, you know, eventually, if, and if it's the Americans, they have a lot of guns there as well. It's not because they're preppers. Was it because they're really good people and so they deserve to escape from the judgment? That's not mentioned. Now, the New Testament does say that Lot was a good person and he was disturbed by what was going on there, but he chose to live there regardless. The emphasis on the story is not on Lot's righteousness, not on the fact that the people deserve this. The emphasis in the story is somewhere else about how judgment is averted or how they escape it. And the emphasis in this story is the key. Let the story speak. And as with many ancient stories, again, the final line in the story, the moral of the story helps us understand the story. So let's read the story based on the final line. What does the final line in the story say? It's in verse 29 of chapter 19. It says this, When God destroyed the cities of the plain, 
He remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Let me read it again. When God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. That's the key of the story. That's that final statement. It's It's not hope that God won't judge the world. It's in the midst of judgment, God will still save people. And what is the criteria? What's the reason that he saves them? In this story, it says God remembered Abraham. The key to the rescue here is not Lot. It's Abraham. God remembers Abraham. Even though Lot's living in Sodom, Sodom's a really bad place, Lot's saving grace was somebody prayed for him. He had an uncle who had a relationship with God. His name was Abraham. And Abraham had had a conversation with God about Lot's situation the day before it happened. So God remembered Abraham. And I think specifically God remembered the conversation that had happened the day before. Now remember, when this takes place, Abraham's looking out over the valley. Smoke is rising. But he's been here before. He was here the day before, and again, the technique in an ancient story, go back to the same place, what happens there? It's like Jesus getting baptised in the Jordan River. It's not just because there's water there. There's a significance about the Jordan all through Scripture, and the reason why he gets baptised there is very significant. What's the significance of this place where Abraham is standing? It's given in the conversation he stands before God the previous day. Let's look at the conversation. This is now back to chapter 18, verse 22. So the men turn away and go uh, towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the, the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth, all the earth, do right? That's the start of the conversation that Abraham has with God. It's a strange conversation. You know, 21st century Westerner person, I look back and I think, what a strange thing to say. We might call it a negotiation. Now, it goes on. This conversation is quite a long conversation. You know what he's doing? And uh, you've been to the Middle East or any countries in the world like that. He's haggling. This is called haggling. You know haggling? You haggle haggle for the price of a piece of garment or something. Some people went to Bali. You haggle for the price of the jeans you're going to buy. He starts at the price of 50 and he said, Surely, God, if there's 50 righteous people, you won't destroy the city. And God says, No, I won't. He brings it down to 45, 40, 30, 20. He gets down to 10. He's done this process of haggling with God. So a good Middle Eastern tradition. He gets God to agree. First of all, it's 50, and then he gets God to agree on 10. God won't destroy the place if there are 10 righteous people. What is Abraham doing? He's praying for his relatives in a very Middle Eastern way that they would totally understand he's negotiating with God for the sake of those he loves very much the culture of the day God bring the price down 
save more people from the judgment. Verse 32. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak once more. This is the last part of the haggling. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. When judgment finally comes, God rescues Lot and his daughters. Why? Not because of Lot. The last line in the story says that God remembered Abraham. Specifically, he remembered this conversation. Abraham knew he had heard God was going to judge the city of Sodom. And so naturally, he's concerned about his relatives. So he stands before the Lord and begins a negotiation, begins a conversation. He stops at 10. I don't know why he stopped at 10. Maybe he figured he had 10 relatives. Uh, In any case, it doesn't matter. There's only three make it out and the city doesn't get spared anyway. He doesn't get what he wants. Well, he doesn't get exactly what he asked for, but he gets what he really wanted. God remembers Abram's prayer for his relatives. He wanted the judgment to stop. He he said, what if there's 10? There weren't 10. The judgment wasn't stopped, but God still provided exactly what Abraham was asking for. There's something about the prayer of Abraham. God listens to this prayer. He remembers the prayer. In the prayer, I think that Abraham felt confidence that he connected with God. He'd made, God had given him confidence it was going to be okay. Essentially, he got God to commit to mercy on behalf of his relatives. Because of this prayer. When the conversation is over, the Lord has finished speaking with Abraham. Uh, Again, it's a strange conversation, might seem weird to us, but after the conversation, I think Abraham had a sense of confidence that he'd put on the table his concern. God, I think, was fully aware of what Abraham was asking for. They both knew the negotiation was complete. A deal had been struck. Abraham then had confidence that God would rescue Lot even though he couldn't see how it was going to happen. The New Testament, believers in Jesus are called the children of Abraham through faith in Christ. We inherit the promise of salvation. We inherit the promise of blessing through faith in Christ. I want to say that we also inherit the ability that Abraham had to have a conversation with God, to engage with God, to pray. And I think like Abraham, we have the, this ability to pray on behalf of those we love. And I think we have reason to hope, even when judgment comes, just like it happened in this story, just like the story says it will in the whole world, God remembers the prayers that we pray for our loved ones. They may be living in a difficult place. They may at present have no interest in God. But I think this story says there's something about the prayer of the believers that God remembers when it's time to make a reckoning. If we go to God, he will hear our prayer. We prevail with him in prayer and obtain a promise on behalf of our loved ones that God will bless them. He will see it through. And I think this is our part of our privilege and our duty as believers to pray for those we love, that they may be rescued from judgment, 
the story gives me great hope. I think it's a story of hope. That God hears, he listens, he remembers and he answers prayer for those we love. And I think that's what the story is meant to convey. Even though it's a difficult story, that's what the story is actually telling us. The last line again, verse 29. When God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. You know, over the years I've heard a number of stories, it's quite encouraging, of people who had no evidence in their life prior to, right before they died, that they were believers. And something happened right in the final stages where they had a fresh understanding. Some people, it's in, their hosp- in hospital in the last, sometimes the last day. I know five people that's happened for, that um, I've been close to. Uh, the person was uninterested in God before that, even hostile. But somehow in their latter days, they reconsidered, opened their heart and came to faith. Now, I can't, pr- I can't say that it happens every time. I can't say there's an absolute guarantee it'll happen in any particular case. I'm not saying that praying for people is a substitute for sharing the good news with them. But these people who have the transformation in their final days, who found peace with God right before the end, they all had someone praying for them. And we really shouldn't be surprised at that if this story is telling us something about the nature of God. I think we can be confident that our prayers can lead to that. That we can ask God on behalf of those we love. Even if they're in a difficult place. And we can be, have a confidence that God will hear, answer and act on their behalf. Even if at the moment it seems hopeless. That is who God is. We can trust him. We can ask on behalf of others. And I think that's how the tension is resolved. Between this idea of God judging the world and us having loved ones who we desperately love, but who don't seem at the moment to have any interest in God. The tension is resolved by us praying for them. Now, I know for a lot of people, this is an area of great distress. It's an area that brings up uh, struggle in your life with people that you love dearly. God meets us in the struggle. But I, and I think this story is helpful in this struggle. It's encouraging that we, as the children of Abraham, can also pray for our loved ones like Abraham did. And that God hears. Now, of course, we don't know the future. We don't know the outcome. But by faith, we can believe that God will engage and work in people's lives. And I think the story gives us hope that that's the case. He hears and takes notice of our prayers and acts on behalf of those we love. I want to give us a time to respond. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up. We're going to have a time. We're going to um, play some music. And I wonder if, as I've been speaking, there is someone in your life, maybe someone's come to mind, maybe someone is on your heart already, maybe more than one person, your children, your parents, your friends, your workmates. You know them, you love them, but at the moment you, you can't see a responsiveness to God in them.
and you're concerned for them and you've been praying for them. I want to, as a church, as, as a community, uh, help us identify who are those people. So I'm going to put some post-it notes on the stage here and there's some pens and we're going to put the whiteboard up and the idea is if there's someone in your life and you're saying, I want to pray for this person. I want to recognise um, that I care for them, uh, that I'd really love God to be working in their life. And the idea is come forward as we play and um, maybe it's an initial, maybe there's several people, their initials or their first name, however it is you want to identify them. Because remember, it's not about us knowing, it's about us bringing this to God. And it's really us saying, I want to commit to praying for that person or those people in my life. And and once we've done that, uh, we'll pray together for those people. And I think what we'll do is take the names of the people, we'll put them in an envelope and say, God, we bring these people before you. We continue to bring them before you.